sight. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. All right, I don't want to waste a minute of Clint Waltz's time or yours because we have so much to discuss in hour number three. And the good thing, well, the good thing, bad thing, Clint, I don't know, people can weigh this. I'm off next Saturday. That's a great <laughs> thing for me. Yeah. Uh, and the good thing for all of you is that any parts of the conversation that you missed with Clint, uh, he came on at 6.30 this morning. We've we've hit a lot of good topics. I'm going to reuse some of our conversation today next Saturday so folks can hear it again or if there's something that you said that they were maybe like, wait, I needed to hear that again. They can next Very Saturday. Good. No, um, I like efficiency. so that's Yeah, and you can be off next Saturday. I'm giving you permission to be off next Saturday. So I appreciate that. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Although I will listen because I think you got a new segment that we did off of your um, off of our field trip that, that you had. So I'll be listening just to see how that comes out. So much fun. Uh, I've recently visited two sod farms up in Cartersville and couldn't get enough. Uh, Legacy and Super Sod, and, and Clint and I met up about a month ago at Super Sod and walked around with Josh and Brandon. They gave us their afternoon, all so that I could have all of that experience to bring back to you all. Harvesting Sod, how to maintain yours as a homeowner, how to take care of it. Uh, the technology they use blew my mind, so of course I have a lot of things about that. So that'll be next Saturday, as well as moon gardening, uh, rehabbing some sick song birds. It's going to be a going to be a diverse show. Yes. Let's say that. Um, And there is no shortage of diversity in the questions we're getting today, too. We're going to stay away from the, I have this grass, but this grass is invading. What do I do? You can ask us some of those off the air, maybe. But we could could play that game all day. The Bermuda's taking over my fescue. The St. Augustine's taking over my zoysia or vice versa. So uh, really, I want to stay a little more streamlined and covering kind of the basics. And we talked about top dressing, Clint. We talked about adding some sand to the top layer, the, the canopy, the grass canopy, to um, make things a little smoother, to fill in low spots, to break down some thatch, things like that. And I had the concern of, well, wait, sand and clay soils don't mix. So you said, well, yeah, you're not tilling in the sand. You're putting it in the grass canopy. But then what about when you aerate? Sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about aerification why you need to do it, and it opens up the soil in such a good way. But then, uh-oh, what happens when some of that sand falls in those holes, and then we kind of seem to be mixing the sand and clay? Well, it's not really a mix. It's it's you, you, You're backfilling a, a void or a channel, and, and that actually helps because that allows us then to move air through and into that root system and diffuse. With Aerification. The Aerification, mm-hmm. yep, uh, on it. So if you aerate and then top dress behind it and you have a good bit of that sand that moves into those those aerification holes or those voids um, that creates permanent channels for water and air to move down into the soil and the root system. So it's different between having a, a kind of a solid channel of sand versus taking and tilling sand into and mixing it thoroughly with that clay. So there's, it's it's two different practices there. So very much on our our Piedmont soils, if you can core aerate and then if you if that's followed back up with uh, with uh, sand top dressing. Uh, that could be of benefit long term. And I'm I'm asking you about some of these, you know, terms and then asking you why we do them. So we talked about top dressing, why do it and when to do it. Uh, aerification or aerating, doing it on our warm season grasses in the summer when they're green. And I don't want a lot of homeowners to think, well, I'm not running that aerator over my nice green 
Bermuda grass, that seems like it's going to destroy it. But quite the opposite. That's when you want to do it. Absolutely. You want to do it whenever the root system's actively growing. So for us in the metro Atlanta area, it's probably somewhere mid to late May would be when you'd want to think about getting started uh, for corification for Bermuda grass and centipede grass and St. Augustine grass and zoysia grass would, would be when the grass is actually doing, or growing or when the root system's there to, to, to take advantage of it. Um, right now, and I have this question come across a good little bit, should I aerate now? And uh, so here we are still, what, middle of March. Uh, They're by, just coming out of dormancy. Coming out of dormancy. And, and I'm just going, you know, my crystal ball's no, no better than yours, but I'm going to forecast that we're going to get at least another cold snap before it's over and done with. Unfortunately. So I don't want to core aerate right now and open up that soil and, and introduce a whole lot more cold air deeper into the root system that's likely to delay green up any further. So waiting till the soil temperatures at the four inch depth are consistently 65 and re- rising. And that's going to probably be somewhere late April, early to mid-May um, for us here in the, in the metro Atlanta area. And, and that's when I've run first think about core aerating warm season grasses is, is not until, like I said, first to middle of May. And that is definitely something you want to have in your, in your toolbox and on your calendar every year. Um, it'd be nice of the average home lawn if it's done every, say, second to third year. Um, depends on how much traffic and where it gets. Um, unfortunately, I see a lot of lawns out there that aren't, don't have real good site prep. And grass is thrown green side up on a good, hard, compacted yeah. clay soil. So in those situations, the, there's no such thing as too much core aeration. Uh, the more you core aerate, open it up, create channels. Um, when I'm doing the classes, I ask my students, I say, all right, put down your pencils. I'm going to ask for some intellectual horsepower here. So I want you to think really hard. <laughs> i got a question. Uh, how many hours a day do you like to breathe oxygen? I would generally go 24. 24 is a good number. <laughs> you know, roots are no different. So um, the, the more air we can get down to them such that they can breathe, the deeper roots we get and the deeper roots we have, the more soil and water from greater depths we can pull out, more soil volume we have to pull water and nutrients from that help us through those stress periods whenever it does get dry or gets hot uh, on the thing. So aeration, tremendous num- uh, benefit to, to our home lawns out there. Compacted soil is not good for anybody or anything. Uh, not unless you're putting a foundation of a house on top of yeah, it. Yeah, okay. That. okay. <laughs> or a road bed or something. <laughs> yeah, but right. but when it comes to our plants, no. whether it's your favorite uh, azalea or your favorite rose or, you know, your, your favorite green, little short green ornamental uh, uh, turf grass, uh, yeah, compacted soil is not a, not a friend. All right. Certainly have a weed question coming your way in a few minutes about wild violets. Oh, my gosh. People chase after those like crazy. Uh, but a question I've gotten for years from the same gentleman. I was never really comfortable giving him an answer. And you may have a good a good answer for him. Free-range chickens. They are free-range in the yard. Does the use of pre-emergence on the grass pose a risk to the grass that they're eating? I'm well, like, I can't say that anything doesn't have some risk, but the risk on this is pretty minimal. Um, if there's any best management practice that he would want to do to, to make sure that there's no issue with these chickens here, put his pre-emergence out, keep the chickens off of it, water it in, or, or don't let them back on it until after a... Rain. A decent rainfall of you know, third to a half inch at least uh, type of thing. Once that happens, the pre-emergence are moved into the soil. They get stratified within the upper, say, inch or so of soil. And you know, I don't think the chickens are eating the soil. They're probably eating the grass or whatnot's right there on top of it. So the likelihood of ingestion on that is, is pretty small. And, and our pre-emergence herbicides aren't taken up by the actively growing plants. So it's not a matter of put it out, moves in the soil, the root system takes it up, and, and then the chickens are getting it through through the plant. And additionally, there's a dilution factor there too. So you know, it'd be one thing, could I kill a chicken if they're just eating it out of my hand? 
I wouldn't. Probably do that. not. <laughs> um, but even then, uh, you, you, I, I think you'd probably do more damage to the chicken by dropping a fifty-pound bag of uh, pre-emergence on them than, than that actually, would hurt than, Yeah, than, <laughs> than actually eating the eating the herbicide. But you made a point to me off the air. You know, our systems as humans versus animals versus plants. Mm-hmm. When you have targeted chemicals that work toward a specific group of organism, yeah. I mean, herbicides aren't meant to really pose right herbicides are are developed to work on plant systems and biologically biochemically animals don't have many of those same systems that those herbicides target so uh, that's why most of the time the toxicology on our herbicides is actually fairly low um, um, on those or the toxicological properties on them are are such that they're not harmful to us Mm -hmm. because they're not targeting the same systems we have. And that's why they work on plants more so than, than, than us as humans. Makes sense. Yeah. So many of the, many things that you and I use every day, you know, for example, salt is, is, is more toxic than most of our herbicides that we use, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's on turf or whether it's on row crops or whether it's on, you know, trying to kill weeds around your, your tomato plants in your garden. Most of our herbicides just, it just don't don't have the same systems that aren't targeting the same systems that you and I have. So that's really good news for the chickens. And for those of you that chickens aren't applicable, insert pet name here, yeah. could be the same type thing. And like I get that question out, a lot. You know, if I, can I put this out? And, uh, and again, the work's been done on this. The EPA requires those toxicology type of things to happen um, before they're ever released. But when it comes to, to animals, most of the time they're – our, our chemicals are, or at least our herbicides anyway, are, are, aren't particularly toxic on those, and, and they're safe. The best management practices are use them according to the label, and then if you can keep the, the pet or, or animal off of them for 24 hours, 48 hours, make sure they get watered in if they need to be, that type of thing, um, and you know, let those things happen before you, you release your, your pet back out on them. Good. All right, so before we go here, I want to ask you about wild violets. Um, Lee battling those for years started seeing populate and they just grow and grow. So mechanically removing them, burning them, 2,4-D and a herbicide, uh, mowing them, what's the best way to combat wild violets? Uh, the best one in that one's going to be the, the herbicide. Uh, you've got two types of wild violets. Some are annuals and some are perennials. And uh, if he's got a fairly shady environment, and that's where we tend to see a lot of the perennials uh, on those, and they can persist, and they're not an easy one. It's a fairly waxy leaf cover to them. And that's what makes them difficult. So uh, make sure you have a good surfactant, which means surface acting material. So that helps move that pesticide, this herbicide, into the leaf itself and into the plant. So the 2,4-D containing products, and generally it's not one. It may be two or possibly three applications spaced 21 to 28 days apart um, on this. So you're likely to have to come back in and make a second or third application to, to get effective control and the perennial ones can be difficult because you've got to get the herbicide has to be taken up. Mm-hmm. It has to be moved into the plant and then uh, translocated or moved within the plant uh, for it to, to hit some of those other parts uh, that, that are going to kill it. That's a tough one. And we'll keep getting calls about that, I'm sure. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Todd and Canton, too, worried about the upcoming freeze. I'm advising you to cover things tonight and Sunday night. So we'll see his question. I'll have some advice for that next on Green and Growing. Stay tuned to WSB. We hope you'll join us all week on Atlanta's Morning News, starting Monday at 5 a.m. With triple team traffic every six minutes to help your commute. Now back to Ashley Frasca and her great gardening advice on 95.5 WSB. Atlanta's News and Talk. 
All right, the weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing today. I know you're waking up chilly. The heat's running in the house, and it's only warming up to about 51 degrees. It's going to be windy today, too, but at least sunny and mostly sunny skies tomorrow. Breezy and cold, a high of only 46. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. Number one, now's the time to spray a fungicide like Captan on apple and peach trees while the blooms are on the tree. The next time you're going to do it is when the petals begin to fall. That fungicide controls and prevents things like scab, brown rot, and leaf spot. Number two, cut back dead leaves on your cast iron plants. The only reason I'm being so specific with that one, Aspidistra, is because so many of you have asked about them. They're tough. Go ahead and cut back all the ugly stuff. They're slow growing, but they'll come back. And number three, prune hollies and boxwoods. Avoid shearing just the tops, though. That's where all the new growth is made. Shades out everything else underneath. So when you want to prune something back like that to reduce the height, remove the longest stems and branches first selectively. You may have to do that over time to reduce the height. And Clint, you have a number four. So we're... I think you had it as one of them last week, if I remember correctly, but uh, you're still in the right spot to, to put out your pre-emergence herbicides. So if you've got a warm season lawn and hadn't gotten your pre-emergence herbicides do out, it. do it. Um, I think there's rain forecast for this week. So yeah. if you get it out this weekend, uh, let the rain work it in, uh, all the better. So uh, if you haven't got your pre-emerge out on, on your warm season species, it's it's time. Come summertime, you'll be really glad you did, and you'll see a lot less weeds in the summer. Want to go back out to the phones and say good morning to Todd Colin from Canton up in Cherokee County. Hey, Todd, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Great. How can I help you today? Well, I uh, was calling about hostas that I have throughout my yard. I probably have 30 or 40 hostas mm-hmm. throughout the yard. They've come up about 10 to 12 inches, and I'm slated to go down into the mid-20s this coming week. Should I cover them or should they be okay? I think they're going to be okay. I'm right there with you. Um, I'm in the same area you are, and mine are about the same height. Mine might be eight, eight nine inches starting to sprout up off the ground. Um, they're fine. They are so tough. As we know, they're perennials. They're going to keep coming back. Some of that foliage may be damaged just a little bit, some of it that's unfurled. Uh, with the freeze, but I wouldn't really think it's going to do too much. If you have some kind of ground cover too, be it pine straw, mulch around them, and even dead leaves, if you're concerned, maybe go rake some dead leaves and pile those up around them for a little bit of extra protection. But especially the ones that are still, you know, the leaves still pretty tightly curled up, I think they're going to be fine. Okay, that's great. I appreciate it. And Clint, you gave some good information this morning as well. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate that. All my guests are my favorites, Todd, but but Clint's up there. Clint's up there. Uh, because this is such a great topic and, and a wide range of listeners are so interested in what you have to say, being a specialist in turf grass, that is a good idea, folks, though, to just remember to cover things tonight, tomorrow night. Don't message me on the Facebook page being like, well, should I cover this? Should I co-? If you can cover it, I would cover it. If it's potted, bring it in. Last night I drug in again the pineapple plant, the gardenia, the fig. I mean, it's just in and out of the kitchen and through the back door. But better safe than sorry. Some of the coverings you can use, of course, bed sheets now that it's going to be dry. You're not worried about the weight of the rain really making those heavy on top of the plants. But using bed sheets, using cardboard boxes, a bucket, Uh, even flower pots for the smaller stuff, plastic if you've got it, frost cloth's ideal. But again, making sure that covering goes all the way to the ground, covers the plant completely. Remove it during the day. Let that get some sunlight. Let it get some airflow. And then back out you go on Sunday night to do it all over again. I promise it'll pay off. 404-872-0750. More with Clint Waltz when we return for the last half hour of Green and Growing. 
It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Mm-hmm. I know it's a real problem. Oh, for sure. Green and Growing right here. 95.5 WSB. The voice you hear in the background, that's Clint Waltz. You've heard him for the last two hours. Thank you for coming in early today. My pleasure. Happy to. It's, yeah. Uh, I always enjoy this. A 6.30 start. Well, it's no big deal for me. I, yeah. I, I work with the turf industry, and whether you're superintendents well, or true. sports field managers or lawn care, they get started early. So, And, you know, I want to thank you, too, for the amazing people you've introduced me to, uh, two of whom we've had on the show because we took field trips to see them, Mark Hoban mm-hmm. at Rivermont Golf Club. Such a fun trip. Such a great interview. Want to get back and see him in the spring. He told me I needed to. You should. Because it's just a whole different ball game to see the golf club in the spring. And then Josh Morrow. Up at Supersod in Cartersville, we had a great time there, and listeners are going to be able to hear a little bit of what came out of that trip when I'm off next Saturday. Yep. Yeah. So it's a uh, it, it. Again, I say I've got a great job. I enjoy what I do, where I do it from, and and the folks that I work with and for in the state of Georgia. I've got a great job and really enjoy what I do, and and it's all because of the people. Yeah. Oh, everybody affiliated with the University of Georgia system is fantastic. And by the way, our friend Becky Griffin up at the Blairsville campus had to tell you hello. So. Hello, Becky. So see, we're meeting yep. all these. I, I get to know all these amazing people through all of you, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, 404-872-0750. Still have time to answer some questions if you've got some calls and questions for Clint this morning. Uh, just went off talking uh, to Todd about what to cover, what not to cover with the anticipated freeze tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, reference my Facebook page. I posted, I reposted something just a few days ago from December, but it had all the same information as to what you should cover, how to do it, what the best things to use are. Um, And really what it boils down to is a freeze this time of year can be a lot scarier and a lot more damaging than, say, a freeze that happens in November, December, right? We've got all that new tender spring growth, especially on uh, fruit trees. We're real worried about the producers and farmers that are having to deal with that in their orchards. But a lot of things like hydrangeas, for example, that are kind of persnickety, right? And they've got their new leaves coming out, want to protect things like that. So that's what you've got to keep in mind. What's got that new tender spring growth that's going to be more susceptible to damage? Your hollies, your camellias, the stuff that's been in the landscape for a long, long time, really not going to be threatened. But not only, you know, dealing with the, the freeze and doing this dance again, Clint, but I remember on, you know, December 23rd, 24th, 25th, whatever it was, right around Christmas. That was devastating for a couple days to be down into the 20s and the teens. Um, Are we seeing any impact now, fast forward three months later, on our turf grasses from that? A short answer on that one is no. Good. uh, On it. Uh, If there was a time of year for that that to have happened in turf and get down to single digits, uh, I think in Griffin we were seven degrees. I know I saw nine on my back porch uh, on my weather station there. So single digits uh, in December on our, our grasses. The stolen infra species like centipede and St. Augustine would be the ones I would have had more concern with um, because they just don't have that soil insulation back around the rhizomes and growing points. But uh, what I've seen so far as I've been moving around the state, especially in the last, say, month, centipede and St. Augustine certainly seems to be coming out. And um, I was aware of a lawn that was sodded in St. Augustine grass inside the perimeter back last July, so it's less than a year old. And it does not have an established and root system. It, not a real deep one, but yeah. it, it, it's there, um, and, and, and it was rooted in and that kind of thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, that day you and I visited so, Super Sod on my way back by, I stopped and looked at that lawn. Yeah. So that was Valentine's Day uh, on a relatively newly sodded 
less than a year old St. Augustine grass lawn in Atlanta, and it was greening up on Valentine's. Mm. That gives me, an, as, as far as a barometer goes, that gives me an indication that even our warm season grasses, that, that freeze in December just really wasn't going to, isn't a problem. And this was a hot issue, hot button issue amongst landscapers and others back in January, early February. But from what I've seen so far, uh, I don't think it's going to pose any long-term problems on, on things. And with a cool season grass like fescue, not cold, but cool season, I mean, that was even a little chilly for that. What was just the quick effect we saw on fescue? We saw some tip burn on it, some leaf burn on it. And, and, I, and a lot of times I'll refer to tall fescue as a wimp when it comes to cold <laughs> temperatures. Um, it'll handle things very well, but it will go off color. And we saw that. Okay. It'll turn a little brown, but it's it's tip burn. And once environmental conditions become more favorable for growth, which have happened in February and March or even late January, um, it mowed out and tall fescue is just looking. Ones I've seen here lately are stunning. Yeah, mine you looks know, And good. tall fescue looks really good this time of year. Um, and then you mentioned the St. Augustine that you saw inside the perimeter greening up on Valentine's Day. So what does that does that bode well or not for people with warm season grasses? Because green up came a lot earlier this year. It's happened. So things in transition now and it's going to freeze this weekend? Well, those upper 20s, um, yeah, it's going to send some things back. And that's kind of where we are right now. That That frost we had Wednesday and Thursday of this week have certainly... We saw a good bit of greening up coming on on zoysias and Bermudas, and uh, I've seen some centipede in St. Augustine around uh, the Macon area, the Griffin area, um, the Henry County area. I'm sure some of that's going to turn brown again. I've already seen Bermuda and zoysia yesterday on campus uh, in Griffin. is is not as green as it was two days beforehand. So that little frost that we have, but it's just going to delay green up a little bit. That's not a direct result of the Christmas freeze. Um, that's just kind of what we get this time of year, and it's yeah. not uncommon. And uh, if they were healthy going into dormancy, they should rebound and, and come on. So once environmental conditions truly become favorable and we stay on that upward trajectory of, of soil temperatures and air temperatures rising, they'll, they'll come on. So I'm telling folks to cover their plants. They don't need to run out and cover their grass tonight. <laughs> they don't need to cover the grass. And the other thing, and back at Christmas, I got this call several times of, do we turn the irrigation on and freeze our lawn um, on it? And the answer is no, don't. Creation of ice is an exothermic reaction, so it does give off heat mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the creation of ice. But the only way that works is if it continues to freeze. So you'd have to leave that irrigation system on all the time. And then when the ice melts, now you've got an awful lot of water yeah. and a wet uh, root zone on a thing because it doesn't just disappear. And uh, so that wet root zone causes some disease issues in the roots and that kind of thing. So do not uh, freeze your grass. Gosh. It works for strawberries in certain parts of the of the state. Uh, but the key there is the water has to continue to run and freezing has to continue to happen for that to be of, of benefit. Okay, great. Uh, next question comes from Chet. Said, turf grass question for Clint. Uh, Zorro Zoysia. Growing really well, so much, in fact, can't keep it out of the flower bed. So maybe buying a plastic edging that he plans to bury. Well, it's four inches tall. So planning to trench that and, and bury that, will that be enough to keep the zoysia from growing into the flower beds? It can be of help, um, and I've seen that. Uh, the problem you have many times is once that's trenched in and, and buried in, if you don't kill the rhizomes and stolons on ah. the wrong side of the, the edging, you think the edging's not working well. You didn't get rid of the plants that are causing the problem over there anyway. So four inches should be sufficient, uh, even for zoysia grass um, or for zorro. Uh, same thing would be Bermuda. Most of the time we don't get rhizomes down that deep. And, and that's what the, that edging is there to do is prevent the rhizomes as below-ground stems 
from moving over. So it has to be deep. It has to be deep. Now, what it also doesn't do is it doesn't do a real good job of keeping the stole or yeah the stolons the above ground stems. So you're going to have to keep those edged back, cut back, or sprayed back with with a non-selective herbicide type of thing. If I'm really good at keeping mulch in my flower beds and do it properly, two to three inches thick of you know pine bark, mulch, pine straw, whatever, is that going to be enough to smother the grass at the edges of the flower beds where I don't want it? It'll help, but when it comes to zoysia grass and Bermuda grass, both. Um, those rhizomes are pretty hardy, and eventually they'll find their way to the top if, if, if given some time and opportunity. So mulch will suppress the weeds, but it's going to be tough to suppress a it'll grass suppress like the, that. It'll, it'll suppress <laughs> the grass too, but remember, those rhizomes, they're, they're, they're very well equipped biologically to, to help that plant survive. Okay, and that's what it's going to do. Yep. 404-872-0750. Back to Canton we go and say good morning to Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good. What is your question for Clint today? So I pretty much have a, a brand new lawn. Last year I had about 65 trees cut down. I'm building the shop. And while it was all Georgia red clay, I spread fertilizer with some ryegrass since it was wintertime. I haven't chosen a seed to put down, whether it's Kentucky bluegrass or fescue. I'm just looking for a good, easy, I have zoysia in my front yard, but I don't want to put sod in the backyard. The rye looks really good, but I know that's going to go away when it gets hot. So just looking for an easy maintenance, but a kind of like a year-round grass to put down and what to do with it. Didn't know if I needed to aerate it or anything like that as well and when to do it. So sounds to me like tall fescues will probably be the best direction to go. Um, okay. We've got some improved Kentucky bluegrasses, but Kentucky bluegrass really isn't one that at this point uh, I would recommend, especially from a seeding standpoint, um, for, for Georgia. Um even in Canton, uh, the only time I feel comfortable seeding Kentucky bluegrass in the state of Georgia is up in the mountains. Uh, from okay. an environmental standpoint, it just the climate's just not conducive. So tall fescue would probably be the better option for you uh, if you want something that's year round. Your challenge is going to be holding that soil and having something other this summer because you really want to seed that would be next fall. So in Canton. If you had everything ready to go by, say, second week of February, or excuse me, September, uh, on the second week of September, and, and letting seed hit the ground about second week of September, soil temperature is still nice and warm. You get germination in, say, three to seven days, and I start growing a root system then. And when I say have everything ready to go, the old one sprayed off, the new soil tilled in, um, tilled up and, and loosened up because you want to have a good, nice, uh, conducive root be- root zone for, for that seed to germinate and put down roots as deep as possible. And September is the ideal time to seed for uh, fescue. Are we getting a little too late for Chris to do any fescue now? Is it getting too warm? Uh, it is. Uh, you could do it and you'll get germination, but I would expect a lot of that's going to probably disappear on you come June, July, and so August. So it might not be worth the effort. Right. And if he wants to put it down now, what I would do is I'd probably buy twice as much seed as you would need, put half of it down now, and then use the same cultivar, keep it stored in a cool, dry place in your garage, in your shop that you just built, and then put the other half of it down, say, sometime in, like I said, by that second week in September. So it matches. So it matches. What about to do, what to do with the soil over the summer, though, if it's, I mean, because obviously the ryegrass died. Right. Or is Uh, going to. It should. I'd probably let that, whatever stubble you have there, just let that stay. You'll probably have some weeds come on. And then somewhere, say, middle of August, start spraying that out with Roundup and kill your weeds off. If you have any volunteer Bermuda grass that finds its way in, some, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, um, and, and start spraying that. You can get one or two uh, spray applications of, of 
glyphosate or Roundup on it, say first middle of August, and another one say week before you you're you're tilling and, and tall fescue seeding. Well, thank you, Clint, and thank you, Chris, for the call. Uh, I want to come back with a few final thoughts from Clint, since we only have him twice a year. What to start thinking about doing over the next month or so? So have your pen and paper ready. Make yourself some notes. When we come back, you're listening to Green and Growing on WSB. Did you know you could listen to Green and Growing, Atlantis Morning News, and all your favorite shows on your smart speaker? Tell it to play 95.5 WSB, and we're on. 95.5 WSB, Atlanta's News and Talk. Here's Ashley. All right. Last four minutes of the show. I can't believe it. It's come up fast. Uh, Clint, quickly before I get into you letting folks know and instructing them how to really get ready for the next month or so, Brad did call in, calling from I-75. That could be 300 miles across the state. Uh, But what do you know about Tahoma 31? We did talk about that a little bit, Bermuda. Earlier on. Um, It's it's an improved Bermuda grass cultivar. It's out of the Oklahoma State Breeding Program. Its real claim to fame is improved water use efficiency. Uh, out there. So it came out of the same breeding initiative that we have with Tiff Tough Bermuda grass. It's a UGA one. Uh, we do have a producer in the state of Georgia with, with Tahoma 31. Despite its performance or perceived performance at the Super Bowl, it's a very good grass. And, and the Super Bowl issue was not the grass issue. That was that was some other things going on. But uh, Tahoma 31's uh, a good grass for, for the state of Georgia. Good. Something to consider. And Tiff Tough as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and both need at least eight hours, wouldn't you say? Maybe. Ideally, uh, yeah. I will say that when it comes to Tiff Tough, I've had it in plots for, gosh, 10, 12 years now, and it continues to surprise me how well it does in shade. Okay. So I'll take it down to about five and a half hours of filtered intermittent sun uh, with Tiff Tough. Okay. Uh, so it'll maintain commercial acceptability down to about five and a half hours, which for a Bermuda grass is kind of a big thing. I know. Uh, on it. I haven't had Tahoma 31 that long in that situation, so I can't really speak intelligently to it, uh, but I've got it in a demo plot there in Griffin now that receives... Uh, fair amount of, of building shade. So we'll see. Okay. Yeah, talk to me in another couple of years. Yeah. yeah well, I know we will be. It's a cumulative, it's a cumulative effect. It's, it's not just one year. It's, it's yeah. over the course of three, four years. To speak intelligibly, as you said. Correct. Can't just make assumptions after seeing it one year. One year could be a weird year. So the next month or so, the fescue is really going to start uh, kind of fading a little bit, but it's still looking pretty tough. Sure. Your warm season grasses are going to be very close to full green up in a month or so. Just generally, some notes that homeowners can take on what to do with their grasses. For tall fescue, because we have enough of those here in the Atlanta area, one is, is fertilizer. Uh, it's time to fertilize tall fescue. Tall fescue should be fertilized. The last so. application of the year? Probably. Well, I mean of this season. Season, correct. And then the other would be bring your mowing height up, because there is a relationship between mowing height and uh, root depth. So in order to precondition that grass to handle the summer stresses that, that will inevitably get here, Having tall fescue up around, say, three, three and a half inches is where we need to go. So if you're lower than that, it's time to start bringing those mowing heights up such that we can get as deep a root system as we can on on our tall fescue. So fertilize and and get our mowing heights up on tall fescue. Warm season grasses, right now patience uh, when it comes to mowing. Uh, Mow at the same height. If you need to clean it up or trying to take care of some of the weeds, mowing it at the same height that you went into dormancy. Uh, we don't need to be fertilizing our warm season grasses right now. Soil temperatures aren't conducive for, for nutrient uptake. Uh, they're still in the 50s uh, on those. So um, don't fertilize warm And we're probably a couple weeks away, but something like zoysia grass, centipede grass, and St. Augustine grass, if you've had disease problems in the past on those species, it might be worth getting out a preventative fungicide application 
just so we don't handle or don't have some of the large patch disease oh, issues right. uh, as we move into to mid-spring. That's when we're going to see them. Yep. Oh. Conditions become favorable, and the grass isn't growing real aggressive, so moving through that's a little difficult for the grasses. So protecting them with a fungicide as we move into first to middle of April would be would be smart. And when you go to extension.uga.edu, the University of Georgia Extension Service through the College of Ag, uh, extension.uga.edu, go to publications, search lawn care calendars, go to Walter's website. Many of you have done that for years, walterreeves.com. Again, lawn care calendars. You can pick the calendar for your grass type. It keeps you on your toes all 12 months what to be doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We had fun today. We did. Hopefully, My well, pleasure. I was going to say, hopefully we helped a lot of folks out. You did. You definitely did. <laughs> there is no hopefully to it. So thank you for coming back. I'm always happy to. And folks will hear Clint again next Saturday when I'm out. A little bit of today's conversation, plus the field trip we took to Supersod in Cartersville. You're going to learn a lot. The technology is amazing. Josh and Brandon were great hosts. So I'll miss you next Saturday, but I'll still be on the air. And we'll be back together Monday morning with Triple Team Traffic during Atlanta's Morning News. Thanks. Thanks.